So the Bible reading is from Romans chapter 5, verse 12 to 21. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people, because all sinned, to be sure, before, sorry, to be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass, For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man... Death reigned through that one man. How much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners... So also, through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, thanks very much, Nicole. It's a complicated, uh, complex sort of uh, passage that we've just read, isn't it? I had a Bible college lecturer who used to say that this was kind of the hardest, hardest part of the Bible to properly get your head around and understand. And he sort of said that no one, really, no one really knew exactly everything that's going on here. No one could really figure it out. So, um, of course, we all tried to prove him wrong and figure it out. So that's one I've thought about um, a little bit, but um, we're going to give it a crack today to see if we can work out what's going on here um, in Romans 5. As Simon has said, we had a great uh, movie night on Friday night. Uh, and I want to tell you about a different movie today. Um, uh, this is one that came up out, out about 10 years ago. Um, I've got a picture over here. It was called The Adjustment Bureau. Um, this one was not especially good. You probably haven't heard of it because it wasn't really a big hit. Um, it kind of flopped, actually. I thought it was... Maybe a little bit underrated, but um, I'd give it three or four stars, th- three and a half maybe. Um, but, but here's the idea behind the movie. Um, the idea is this. All through history, behind everything that's happened in the world, there's a secret organisation that's secretly running everything and controlling everything. Uh, the Adjustment Bureau. And when history doesn't go the way they want, they make adjustments, they Uh, pull the strings, they make changes, they make sure everything works out just how they want it to. 
And there's this key scene in the movie where you kind of get this big reveal of just how far this secret organisation goes. And the main character meets one of the agents from the Bureau and he says, you know, whatever happened to humans living how they want? And the agent says this, "Uh, we actually tried that before. After taking you from hunting and gathering to the height of the Roman Empire, we stepped back to see how you would go on your own. And then you gave us the Dark Ages for five centuries. And so we decided to step back in again and we gave you the Renaissance and the Enlightenment and the Scientific Revolution. For 600 years we taught you to control your impulses with reason. And then in 1910 we stepped back again. 50 more years you gave us World War I, depression, fascism, the Holocaust and capped it off by bringing the entire planet to the brink of destruction in the Cuban Missile Crisis. At that point, a decision was taken to step back in again before you did something even we couldn't fix. It's kind of of compelling, isn't it? The idea that if we could pull the curtain back, that there might be a secret organisation controlling everything and pulling all the strings. Uh, Maybe that would help us to find better explanations for why the world is the way that it is. Maybe this is the reason for uh, the grand narrative of history, that there's really this secret uh, that we just need to figure out that explains uh, why things have played out the way that they have. Of course, this is why things are the way that they are. Um, Although you stop to think about it, and actually the Adjustment Bureau's explanation of history doesn't really hold up. Um, Historians will tell you that the Dark Ages really wasn't as bad as the name implies, and they'll tell you that actually the Roman Empire wasn't really all that good. Um, And all through history, there's been war and brokenness and all sorts of horrible things that have happened. Um, It's also a particularly Western view of what history is. Uh, But in today's passage in Romans, well, I think we get the Bible's answer to how we make sense of the world and of history. The Bible's answer to what makes sense of the great story of history. Uh, And if you've got your Bible or you've got your phone or your device, it'd be good to keep that second half of Romans 5 open in front of you. Notice the way that this passage goes right back to the very beginning of the world, right back to Adam and to Eve, the very first humans. And then by the end of the passage, we get to the very end of history. We talk about eternal life with Jesus, beginning to end is all there in this chapter. And so today we have a chance to peer behind the curtain and to see why the, uh, what the Bible says about why things are the way that they are. And my goal today is to show you that the Bible's view on things does stack up. Unlike the Adjustment Bureau movie, the Bible's understanding of history actually makes perfect sense of what we see around us. The Bible has compelling reasons for why things go wrong, why the world often doesn't seem like it should be. The Bible does have reasons for why we see shocking pictures of things like war, Uh, And we're seeing shocking pictures of things like war on the news every night at the moment, aren't we? And according to the Bible, the problem of humanity is all centred around this story of Adam and sin entering the world with Adam. Uh, But I want to show you today too that the Christian worldview doesn't just help us make sense of evil in the world, it also makes sense of the longing we have for something more, the longing we have for things to be better. And Christianity, in fact, offers real hope for things to be better, real hope that's all centred around Jesus. So um, let me put up the outline of um, what I'm going to talk about today then. So we've got um, these two things here in terms of how Christianity makes sense of our world. Uh, These are the two things. It tells us the problem in Adam and then it tells us the hope in Jesus. 
the problem in Adam and the hope in Jesus. And actually, those two points will take us uh, to the start and the end of the passage. And then lastly, we'll come back to the bit in the middle of um, this passage. And uh, we'll see that Paul has two key qualifications that he wants to make. As he tells us about Adam and Jesus, he then wants to make two key um, qualifications that are really important ones. Um, So the problem in Adam the hope in Jesus, and then two qualifications. And I hope as we go through, we'll see that this stuff isn't just theoretical. It really matters and it really does make a difference. Uh, And we'll draw out some application points as well. But let's start with point one. Uh, Let's notice the problem in Adam. Uh, Now for this point, we're going to think about just the very first verse of our passage, verse 12, uh, a verse that's uh, had lots and lots of smart people who have written lots about it, trying to figure out exactly what's going on. Um, Let's get this verse up in the screen. It says, uh, Therefore... Just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. Quite complicated, isn't it? What is this verse talking about? Uh, Well, first of all, uh, the verse says, therefore, it looks back to what we've we've covered previously. Um, We here at church, we haven't been in Romans for the last couple of weeks, but um, a few weeks before that, we did cover um, this this part of Romans. And uh, I'm sure those who were with us might remember some about that. We've seen Paul talking about grace Uh, We've seen Paul talking about what Jesus has done for us. Um, And in the first half of Romans 5, we we even saw how God's love for us was so great that Jesus died for us even even while we were still sinners, he died for us, it says in Romans, uh, the first part of Romans 5. We've seen God's great love for us on that personal level, uh, the great love in the gospel. But here in verse uh, 12, Paul sort sort of zooms out. Rather than now just talking about the personal level, what grace means for me, he wants us to notice the truth of grace at the cosmic level, how grace relates to the great story of history. And so he says, how did sin enter the world in the first place? Well, it was through one man and death through sin. And Paul is talking about that story from the very start of the Bible, um, from Genesis, the story of Adam and Eve. And um, lots of us will know the story well. If you do know the story, try and kind of bring to mind, what do you remember about about that story of Adam and Eve? Um, They're they're in the garden. uh, They're told not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then a serpent comes and the serpent says, you should eat from it. And rather than listen to God, they decide to listen to the serpent and and they, they go against God and choose not to trust God and they do eat the fruit, the first sin. And now we know that even, even just in the story of, G, story of Genesis, Adam and Eve's sin changed everything. In the garden before, um, before the sin, everything is great. Adam and Eve have all they need. They have a great relationship with God. There's all sorts of fruit and food and it's a picture of a great flourishing life. There's no death, there's no pain. To be a human was one of God's, to be one of God's great creations. Uh, but you know, now we sometimes use the word human to... Um, talk about how we're flawed or how we're weak or imperfect. Uh, if a footy player has a bad game, you know, someone might say, oh, well, he's only human. Or if I, you know, forget to put the bins out this week and then our bins end up especially full and smelly for the next week, as did actually happen this week, um, because we have to wait a whole another week for the bins to go out again. Anakin might say, well, why did you forget the bins? And I might say, well, I'm only human. Um, if you've got your thesaurus out, well, you would probably actually find in there that one of the ways we use the word human is um, to, to use a word like fallible or, f- or flawed or mortal. Um, that's one of the ways we use the word human. But if Adam and Eve hadn't sinned back in the garden, if, if Eve had got out her thesaurus, well, she would have found that things were quite different. Humans weren't flawed. We were good creations of God. We weren't mortal. There was no death. But Adam and Eve did sin. And as Paul says here, death came through sin, and in this way, death came to all people 
because all sinned. Now here's a tricky question. Paul seems to be saying that this guy, Adam and Eve, they lived thousands of years ago and we kind of vaguely know their story and Paul seems to be saying that those people that maybe lived thousands and thousands of years ago, that their sin from all those years back, that that sin is our problem. That sin actually affects us. Sin entered the world through this one man and death through sin and death came to all of us because all sinned. Actually, it seems to be saying that Adam's sin from thousands of years ago, it almost says that in Adam's sin we all sinned, which is really strange, isn't it? Because I don't know about you, but I wasn't even born when Adam was alive. I don't really know what it has to do with me. Um, it's, it's strange, isn't it? And, and really the question that theolo- this is the question that theologians write these book, big books about. They call this the um, original sin question. How does Adam's sin, which is the original sin, have anything to do with you and with me? Um, one of the options that is um, perhaps uh, in some way when Adam sinned, perhaps um, somehow when Adam sinned, he represented all of us. Um, that's kind of a weird weird thing to think about like it where we live in a culture that's very individualistic so the idea that someone else could represent me is kind of a strange thing for us to get our heads around but we do um we do sometimes talk this way um some of you might know that i'm into formula one uh there's a young aussie racing in formula one at the moment oscar piastri um and a couple of weeks ago he won his first race uh which was pretty pretty special pretty pretty impressive um when i saw him win it kind of felt like i won you know, I was like, yes, we won. Now, of course, I wasn't there in the car racing with Oscar Piastri, and I wasn't there with Adam when he sinned. And, of course, we weren't personally responsible for what Adam did, but perhaps there is a sense in which, as he sinned, well, we all sinned as well, because he was our representative. Um, the other way... I think that theologians perhaps try to understand this. It's slightly different. Um, it's a little bit more like what I did in the kids' talk today, actually. We might not have been there with Adam, but maybe we are all descended from Adam. And perhaps then, because we're descended in Adam and we stand in Adam's line, perhaps, well, like he had flaws and he sinned, well, then we sin too. And I think that does make a lot of sense, especially if you remember in Genesis, after Adam and, Adam and Eve sin, there's a curse. The world is cursed. Um, So all of us now, we we live in a broken and cursed world, is what the Bible says. Um, And it would make sense if that curse and if that sin affects us in that way. We're not inclined to do good anymore. We're broken and we're flawed and so we sin. And our flesh is weak. We don't always do what we want to do. Um, We know that, don't we? I certainly don't live up to even my own standards, let alone to God's. And this might kind of feel a bit depressing and a bit harsh and a bit sad. And we might say, well, is there any hope then? Um, can we even do anything if all of us are just sinful and guilty? Um, and we could come to this with sort of tricky, tricky questions like, well, okay, well, what about a little baby then? You know, we've, uh, me and my wife have a baby uh, due to be born in about five, six weeks' time. You know, surely that little baby is going to come out and she's going to be innocent, right? Like, a, she hasn't done anything wrong. And of course, there's, there's great truth in that. Little baby, so innocent. But um, Romans seems to be saying there's still a truth in which even that little baby is still human. And if, if Adam represented that baby, then... Well, Adam failed and sinned, and so that baby will grow up in the sinful and broken world, and that baby will grow up with desires and flesh that aren't as they were meant to be, and so she will be part of the broken sinfulness of humanity. Strange, isn't it? And weird. And we should say, actually, though, like, let's, as we talk about this, let's not lose the wood for the trees. Sometimes the theologians, all they want to talk about from this passage is kind of Adam's sin and what it has to do to us. But the big point Paul's making here isn't actually about Adam. 
He's, what he's trying to show us is that um, there is hope. And if Adam's sin could affect all of us, well then, how much more is Jesus enough to save all of us? Uh, this is all what it's about. It's all about trying to set us up for what Paul wants to say positively about Jesus. Um, but perhaps just before we turn to Jesus, can we just pause and um, just apply this first point a little bit? If you um, turn on the news tonight, um, in our family we've actually started watching the news sometimes on Sunday nights, a bit of a Sunday night tradition. If, if you go home and you put on the 6 o'clock news tonight, um, you will see on the news tonight, won't you? You'll see, um, you'll see a lot about Israel and Palestine and the war. Um, you might see some news about Ukraine and the war there. Um, you'll no doubt see some other sad things that have happened a bit closer to home, no doubt some shocking things. Um, there might be some things about the referendum last week, um, whatever you voted, you know, whichever way you voted, the whole conversation is kind of a reminder of some of the shocking things that have happened to Indigenous people over the years, and we saw one of those stories on Friday night. There's all sorts of shocking things that happen in our world, both further away and closer to home. Um, well, can I say what Paul is talking about here actually helps us understand what we see on the news. It actually helps us to understand why humans never seem to be able to get it quite right. Uh, what Paul gives us here, well, movies like the Adjustment Bureau have their own ways of trying to kind of explain what's happening behind human history. Uh, but Paul is giving us the Bible's answer, the Bible's way of peeking behind the curtain and finding out what's really going on. And what we see behind the curtain is that the real problem is sin. And since Adam's sin has been in the world and death has been in the world, well, the Christian worldview shows us that that means the world isn't how it should be. It makes sense of that despair that we feel, wishing things would be better. But the Christian doesn't have to be surprised by war or injustice or tragedy. We can be sad about it, but we know that we live in a broken world, broken by sin. Broken by Adam's sin and broken by our sin. And so the good news then. Because as we glimpse the seriousness of the problem of sin and as we glimpse the extent of the brokenness of the world, well, that means we can turn with even more wonder and amazement at the hope that the Bible gives us in Jesus. If Paul is showing us that the Bible's way of explaining the problems of the world is all around sin and Adam, well, what's he, what he wants us to do is to um, then look away from Adam and look to Jesus because the Bible's answer for where hope for this world can be found is all centered around him and what he's done. Uh, the world was broken. And uh, um, as I said a few verses before our passage today, actually, it was in the passage we looked at a, a few weeks ago, um, at just the right time in the story came Jesus, at just the right time. While we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Into this story of brokenness came Jesus, just at the right time. And we're seeing in our passage today the comparison that Jesus is making uh, sorry, Paul is making between Adam and Jesus. In verse 12, Paul started that comparison and then actually he kind of gets sidetracked in verses 13 to 14. That's when he gets onto these two um, side points, these qualifications. He kind of pauses mid-thought and then tells us a couple of other things and then he comes back to complete his thought. Um, he comes back to complete his thought in verse 18, kind of towards the end of the passage. So he says in verse 18, Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. We've seen some of the mechanics of this in the last couple of chapters of Romans. 
in Jesus, God's righteousness was revealed. God, God punished Jesus, who was the righteous one, for the sins in the world. And that punishment was turned off of people and onto Jesus. And as we come to Jesus and as we are found in Jesus, we can then be seen in Jesus. And before God, we can have his righteousness. We can be justified with him. We can be raised to life with him. See, Christianity explains the brokenness of humanity with sin and our broken relationship with God. But Christianity then also provides the real solution. It's not just humans eventually figuring things out. In Jesus, we can be justified. We can have our relationship with God restored. Of course, we still live in the broken world. We still live in a world where death reigns. Christians are still affected by sin and death and grief, of course. Um, But look at the comparison in verse 21. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus our Lord. Christians still live in the broken world, the world of Adam, where death and sin reign and we still die. But if Christians are found in Jesus, well then for us, grace reigns, eternal life reigns. Ultimately, for the Christian, death doesn't have a hold of us. Death will come, but death doesn't defeat us. Like Jesus rose to conquer death, we too will have life after death. We have eternal life with Jesus to look forward to. Yes, the world is broken. Yes, sin is serious. But in Jesus, there is real solution. Death really is defeated. And this is, of course, good news if we're in Jesus. Uh, And if we're not sure about who Jesus is, hopefully it's an encouragement to think, huh, Well, is this right? Is this actually how the world works? Is this the best way to understand what we see around us? Is it time to look more deeply into who this Jesus is? But for the Christian, this is exciting. This is good news. Like we were kind of connected to Adam and we were connected to him in his sin. Well, now we're connected to Jesus. We get to share in his victory. We get to live for him. We get to celebrate. Remember um, a few few weeks ago, um, she's going back a couple of months, when the Israelites came out of Egypt and we were looking at that part of the Bible in Exodus. Remember the joy that they had in their salvation. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God. I will praise him, they sang. And we can sing along to this song of salvation as well. And we can sing along because there's real hope. Um, If you do what I was talking about before and you watch the news tonight, you may well come away a little bit depressed by um, some of the brokenness in the world and some of the things going on. Maybe the news actually is a a bit more of a trivial example because um, I'm sure lots of us don't need to watch the news to um, know some of the brokenness that's in this world. Maybe there's enough brokenness just in your own life right now. Um, But the encouragement is if if we're feeling that brokenness, is that the hope we have in Jesus isn't just, well, maybe we'll eventually figure it out. Or maybe slowly but surely we can get a little bit more back to normal. Now, the hope we have in Jesus is that even if things go terribly for us and even if we face death itself, that death doesn't reign because we're not in the story of Adam anymore. We're in the story of grace. And for us, grace reigns. Eternal life reigns. And so in Jesus, we have nothing to fear. Instead of fear, we have sure and certain hope, eternal life waiting for us. 
Uh, now let's come finally back to these two qualifications. As I said, this is in the middle of the passage. Paul sort of talks about Adam, gets sidetracked with these qualifications and then comes back to talk about Jesus at the end. Um, but so just to sum up, this is the Bible's version of pulling the curtain back and seeing why things really are the way that they are. The, the problems of the world go back to Adam, back to the sin of that one man and hope for the world is found in Jesus, like, like Adam, except uh, righteousness from the one man. But in that comparison, there are two big buts that Paul wants to throw in there. And he pauses his thought halfway through just to point out a couple of things because um, there's a couple of ways in which this, this doesn't work. So um, the first one is so qualification one. Even though our sin goes back to Adam, we are still responsible. That's the first thing he kind of wants to clarify. Um, I think this is the key of what he's saying in verses 13 and 14. Um, these are complicated verses again, and there's, there's, there's still some pretty confusing logic here. Um, I think this is, would have made a lot more sense to the original um, Roman audience, where there were Jews and Gentiles and some of the questions they were asking. Um, it's a bit more confusing for us, but I think we can, we can get the big point. Um, and I think it's that we're still responsible for our sin. I think that's what he, wants to, what he wants to clarify. Let me show you verses 13 and 14. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was the pattern of the one to come. Um, see what I mean by a little bit confusing? What exactly is going on there? Um, there's kind of a weird question in, here. In the Bible, um, in the story of Adam, there was a clear rule. Okay, So um, Adam had a very clear command, didn't he? Don't eat from the tree. It's actually pretty simple. One tree you can't eat from. He had a, he had a clear command. And then later, as you go through the Bible, well... The, the Israelite people also had very clear commands. They had the law, the Ten Commandments, and, and so on. We're going to look at that part of the Bible um, next year as our plan. Now, Adam sinned because he broke the rule, and the Israelites sinned because they didn't follow the law, so they broke the rules too. But the question is, well, what about everything, everyone else? What about particularly those people in between them? Because they didn't really have any rules. Um, so could they even sin? And we might ask, well, you know, can, can we even sin? Um, depending on what rules we have. This question was apparently important to the people in the time of uh, Paul writing this letter. What, what about before the law? Was, uh, were there still sin if there was no laws to break? It's kind of a bit like if my kids start drawing on the walls of texters. You know, can they say, well, you didn't tell us not to draw on the walls, Dad. I didn't even know that's a rule. You can't blame me. I'm not sure if I have told them actually to not draw on the walls. Maybe I should go home and tell them today just to get ahead of it. Um, but what about this? What about those people who didn't have the Old Testament law? What, what about those people between Adam and Moses? Um, well, Paul says, well, he does seem to say that in some ways things were different. There seemed to be this sense in which sin was not charged to anyone's account. Sin was not recorded in the same way. And he's, he's actually here using a metaphor from the business world. It's, it's to do with like careful bookkeeping and that sort of thing. Perhaps in this time, sin wasn't recorded in quite the same way and every sin was carefully recorded like a, um, like a good business person would carefully keep the books. Um, but what's clear is that everyone still sinned and everyone was still responsible for their sin and the proof of that is that death still reigned. Everyone between Adam and, Adam and Moses still died and even though they didn't break commands in the same way that Adam did, it's very clear that they were still sinning. That's, that's Paul's argument. Death is still reigning. They're still, they're still living in Adam. And actually, this might take us back to earlier in Romans. You might remember in those first couple of chapters, Paul was really just trying to show how sin was so comprehensive. And he, he said something about the Gentiles and how their actions showed actually that the law was even written on their hearts um, just by their sinfulness. They were showing that. It's the same here. The point is not that 
having the, uh, not having the law is an excuse um, for the Gentiles in that Roman church. This wasn't an out. You know, we didn't have the law anyway, so we didn't sin. No. Sin is not primarily about breaking the rules anyway. Sin is a whole life of not living for God, not living God's way. Instead, living against him, deciding what's right and wrong for ourselves. Um, that's the problem at the heart of the world. That's sin, not just breaking a rule every now and then. We mustn't think that Christianity is a religion of rules, like we've just got a set of rules that we have to keep and we keep these rules, whereas others don't. Uh, Christianity deals with a much bigger issue than that. It's about our hearts. It's about our relationship with God. And from Adam onwards, that sin has been there for everyone. We're all responsible for that rejection of God. I think that's what he's trying to say here, Paul. I think he's saying that we're all responsible um, for our sin. Even though it goes back to Adam, we can't blame Adam and, and pass the buck and say, well, it's not our fault. And now qualification number two, I think this is even more profound. Um, he also wants to say, as he compares Adam and Jesus, hang on a second, I'm going to compare them here, but Jesus is so much more than Adam. One of the things that I find often when I'm preaching or doing kids' talks or things like that um, is that I'm always trying to think of illustrations or examples or analogies um, perhaps comparisons to help us sort of understand things better and to help us better understand Jesus. And those things sometimes are helpful, I hope. Um, but I'm often aware that um, sometimes when I'm coming up with those illustrations, that while on the one hand it might work pretty well, on the other hand they're often really like, when you think about it, it's like, oh, hang on, this is really wrong. I mean, I'm going to just you know, throw myself under the bus here this morning. Um, I compared Jesus to a white piece of wood. That's kind of not right, is it? Like, Jesus is not a white piece of wood. It's kind of not quite right. Um, I, I can think of times in the past, I, I'm sure I've done things like, uh, well, Jesus is a bit like a captain of our footy team. Um, and, you know, I could tell you some things that I think are true about that. Like, in some ways, Jesus is like a captain of a footy team. Um, but as you think about it, and I think, hey, that's actually so wrong, isn't it? Not least because footy team captains don't generally tend to be the most upstanding kind of citizens these days. And look, Jesus himself actually was happy to use all sorts of illustrations and comparisons, and he compared himself to all sorts of people. Um, but I think in Romans 5, Paul is having one of these moments, because he's just compared Jesus to Adam. And there's some really valid truth in that comparison. In some ways, Jesus is a lot like Adam. But verses 15 to 17, he really wants to hammer home that Jesus is also not like Adam. So much not like Adam. Look at what he says here. But, just so I'm clear... Uh, the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of that one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared to the result of one man's sin. In some way, it's even ridiculous to make this comparison. Okay, that's in verse 16. Nor can the gift of God be compared to the result of one man's sin. There is something really valid in it, but also it's just so different. And Paul uh, goes into this a little bit here. He says, uh, yes, Adam's sin led to the deaths of all of us. Uh, but as he's just said, we're responsible of that, for that too. Uh, but with Jesus, well, his gift isn't something that we contribute to. We're not responsible for our salvation in grace. His grace overflowed to the many. Uh, it makes me think of something like a river. Uh, if you can imagine, perhaps with Adam, it's a little bit like a uh, if you've ever been to the top of a mountain and you kind of see those little mountain streams and they sort of, just little streams and they all kind of slowly come together and they slowly, slowly um, turn into a bigger river. Perhaps sin with Adam is a little bit like that. 
It all started with Adam. He's like one of those little trickles that started at the top of the mountain. Um, but as it goes down the mountain, well, we, all, we all add our sin into the mix too. We all contribute to the flow. We all play our part to that river of sin. Uh, but with Jesus, the gift is not like that. We don't add or contribute. We don't add to grace by adding our own salvation in there. We don't contribute to the flow of river. Jesus' grace, well, Paul describes it here like a, fl- like a flood. It, it overflows. It's like a dam collapse where that just surging wall of water just comes right down the valley, covering everything. That's what grace is like. And grace comes to all it comes uh, and it washes our sins away. Now, Adam started in the story of sin. We contributed to his sinful ways. We contributed in that sinful story. Uh, But the story of grace is a story of an overwhelming flood. Jesus' grace is everything we need. It's more than enough to deal with our sin. It's abundant, as it says in verse 17. We don't add to it. We don't need to worry whether Jesus' grace is enough for us, whether our sin might be too much uh, for grace to deal with. I mean, if one man, Adam, can affect us so profoundly, well, then how much more is Jesus' grace uh, enough for all who follow him. And that might be the question, well, okay, well, if Jesus' grace is enough, well, then why should we worry about sin at all? Let's just go sin as much as we like. Um, and that's exactly what Paul's going to come to next in chapter 6. Uh, but for now, I think this is the point to finish on. We've seen today, ever since Adam, we've lived in a broken world. Christianity gives us reason to make sense of the broken world. Sin, Adam's sin, that's where it started. Our sin, it continues. And God could leave the world in brokenness. Uh, But as we grasp the brokenness of the world, we see even more clearly the amazingness of grace. The grace of Jesus, that's like like that overwhelming flood. It's not deserved. We don't contribute to it. And whoever we are, whatever we've done, it's more than enough for us. In Jesus, we can find forgiveness. We can find freedom. And we can find uh, this life eternal In Jesus, we receive abundant provision of grace, the gift of righteousness. We reign in life with him. In Jesus, we have real hope for this world because he gave his life to save it. And so today we can praise Jesus for the hope found in him. And we can live for him, knowing that we're not in Adam anymore, we're living for Jesus. I'm going to pray and then praise him is what we're going to do. We're going to stand and we're going to sing together. Uh, Let me pray for us. Thank God for his word to us today. Oh, Father God, we are thankful for your word and we are thankful for the truth today that we've heard about your world. Um, I pray for those of us who are feeling the world's brokenness. It's a hard world to live in sometimes. Um, And we confess that we are not innocent in this. We contribute to the world's problems. We uh, often fail to live your way. But we thank you today for the hope found in Jesus for his grace that's like an overwhelming flood, uh, that in him grace reigns, life reigns. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray today. Amen.